Would you like to look over your Luke family Robinson and be sure that that's all correct? <laughs>
Good morning, brothers and sisters. We have a little bit of a condensed group today because of the illnesses and people vacationing, and we would pray that uh, we would hold our brothers and sisters up, that they have a speedy recovery. Uh, Jared is down. Can't hear me? Okay. Good morning, brothers and sisters. <laughs> that better? <laughs> Let's go over a few announcements. On his robe and on his high thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelations 19, verse 16. One service today, just a morning worship. Uh, grateful for another year brought to an end and pray that the Lord blesses us richly in the year to come. Men's Bible study, Tuesday at 10 o'clock at McLeod's. Prayer meeting, again, Wednesday at 7 p.m. Come on out. It's, it is a truly joyous time when souls gather to unite in prayer. There's strength in numbers, and we feel it with the more people that are here. Thornville will be hosting a Sovereign Grace Baptist Association men's retreat, January 26th and 27th. We need hosts to house the men. Uh, they'll bring their own sleeping bags that you can see and sleep on the floor so that shouldn't be a big issue breakfast will be at the church breakfast casseroles etc I don't know how all that works but uh, somehow I have a suspicion some of the ladies are going to be pressed into making these casseroles so when they make them they're... I am going to cook I'm going to wear a fancy thing in the whole nine yards and, and, and I think I'm washing dishes too, so. Um, tithing envelopes, so if you haven't gotten yours, they're in the foyer table there. Uh, sign up for those if you would. Communion next Sunday following morning worship. No dinner, no evening service. Have I uh, gotten everything? Has anybody got a, a blurb they need to, to bring out? You mentioned the winter blast for the young people there on number six. Oh, I'm sorry. See posters on help sport. Okay, right outside here. And if you have questions, see Laura Clayton. Who's out sick today. Who's out sick today, along with her husband, Doug, and Jared, and several others. Uh, so let's, let's keep our brothers and sisters in prayer. Scripture for meditation today is 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 13 through 18. That would be page 1840 in your pew Bible.
I was just reminded that we have new acts and facts on the foyer table for those uh, who would like to avail themselves. Very interesting reading, very, very in tune with uh, what the world does today. Uh, acts and facts and uh, Institute for Creation Research. Is, mm -hmm. Those are out there too. Mm -hmm. uh, get a hold of those are magnificent, how they, how they pair in with the Bible and uh, how it applies to modern day living. So please, uh, in fact, here's one right here. Very, very instructive and intuitive reading. So would you stand with us as we open our service in prayer? Brother Ed Riffle, would you lead us in prayer, please? Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to come to worship you. So, for your grace that you apply in the Holy Spirit, I pray that you will rest heavily upon us and upon our pastor. If you would then continue to deliver the message. Be with those who are providing us still today. Bring them back to us. Help me tomorrow. Thank you. Lord, for this year, and pray that you give us for our opening hymn, page 258 in the hymnal. It's in the brown, in the brown hymnal, 258. 258. <clears throat>
And do we have a favorite hymn? Okay. Um, I'm in a conundrum because we have a new hand, and I'm, I'm, I'm kids, I'm going to, sorry, Andrew, you are next in my queue, but Mr. Uh, Lewis has his hand up today. I'm really sorry. Go ahead. Five, six, nine. Five, six, nine. Do we have a reason for that one? Well, we're going to start a new year. There's some things in here pretty interesting. Five, six, nine. In the brown. You may stand if you wish, <laughs> but you don't have to. Our scripture reading for today is taken from the book of Revelation, 
chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, page 1935, in your pew Bible. Brother Ed, come up and render the reading for us. Please stand with us as we read this. I saw heaven open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Take your red Trinity hymnal and turn to 320, 320 in the red.
Our scripture text this morning is Revelation 19, last book of the Bible. When you're leaving today out here on the uh, little um, table are some remembrances from Donna. If you didn't get one last week, um, she always planned Christmas gifts well in advance. So that's what they're all, they are. They're Christmas gifts for people of the church. And if you didn't uh, get one, um, help yourself to that. I don't want to take them back home. So they're remembrances of her. As we come to today's scripture lesson, let us ask for the Lord's presence and blessing. Holy Father, send your word to us with power and great glory, that you might be magnified and beautified by the truth of your word. Make us people of truth. Give us ears to hear. We want to hear. And I'm not just talking about our external ears. We can all hear. But we pray, Father, that we would hear with the inner heart, hear the truths that need to be received well within our spirit. Our sin needs to be rebuked in which we need to repent of. Our coldness needs to be warmed so that we love God better, love him firstly and mostly. We need to have love for one another. The new year presents us with the opportunities to demonstrate that love and watch care over each other. And we think of all those that are sick today, and there are many families out. And just pray for them, Lord, that you will bless them. Even as they watch on the uh, Internet this morning, we ask that you would encourage them and bless them, Lord, with the power of your Spirit. We ask this for your, firstly and foremost to your, for your glory and pray your blessing upon us in Christ's name. Amen. Looks like my decorations just fell off. Which is okay. I've all thought I was in the jungle up here. So There, we'll just take it down. All right, our text is uh, Revelation 19. Jesus is the reason for the season. This slogan, which is seen on everything from bumper stickers to Christmas cards, is the result of the Christian community's effort to remind the world around us that Santa Claus and tinsel and toys and sumptuous foods and beautiful decorations are not and were not central to the event which everyone says they are celebrating. We lament the fact that amidst all of the hustle and bustle of the world celebration, the coming of the Christ child has been obscured, if not obliterated, by the wrong emphasis. And so the Christian community came up with this slogan, Jesus is the reason for the season. They came up with that in an attempt to cause people to refocus their celebration away from the secular to the spiritual. But I have a question. What Jesus is the reason for the season? 
To what Jesus has the Christian community tried to direct the attention of the world? In my travels around Lapeer County, I have witnessed several paltry depictions of Jesus on the signboards of several churches. In November, I read a sign that said, Need help? Question mark. Try Jesus. I became sick at heart when I read that. Here Jesus is reduced to aspirin status. Got a headache? Try an aspirin. Let me ask, is this the Jesus who's the reason for the season? Has Jesus Christ come for the express purpose of tryouts by men? To see if by ingesting him people will find a cure for what ails them? Is Jesus simply to be tried as one of the many possible remedies? And then if he doesn't pan out, we can simply try something else. Is God to be used like this by sinners? And is the church to encourage the world to come to Christ by appealing to their hurts in a purely secular way? Another sign I read said, Jesus Christ comes with an everlasting guarantee. I nearly lost my cookies on that one. Is Jesus a commodity? Like the merchandise we buy at stores where the first question out of our mouth to the sales clerk is, what kind of guarantee comes with this? Is Jesus to be reduced to the language of shopping in a commercial setting? Does getting what you paid for fit the advent of the Lord of glory? Is it only because of certain guarantees that we encourage people to come to Christ? Welcome to Christ because the deal he provides for you is better than the one you're going to get down the street by the next religious huckster. When Isaiah the prophet spoke in monetary terms in relationship to the coming of God, it was in a setting which utterly destroyed the concept of payment or charge. Let me read it for you. Isaiah writes, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you will come who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will, get it now, he will freely pardon. No money, no buying your way to heaven. In our day of religious charlatans who sell Jesus for a price, it is unwise and misguided to depict him as coming with some kind of a Guarantee, like so much merchandise purchased from Walmart or Sears. This is not the Jesus who is the reason 
for the season. A third sign that I read on a church signboard brings us to the topic at hand. I read, Baby Jesus comes or came to save us. Baby Jesus came to save us. Well, this sign didn't make me sick. It just made me sad. And I was saddened because while there is a measure of truth in what was said, the saying on the sign continues to propagate the myth held by the world that salvation is somehow associated with the mere arrival of the babe in Bethlehem. To the world of our Christianized society, salvation is to be found in the fact that the Savior has come and not, not in the work which the God-man accomplished at Calvary on a cross and not in our relationship to the crucified, risen, and reigning Christ through repentance and faith. So I ask, is the mere appearance of Emmanuel, which means God with us, is the mere appearance of Emmanuel, is that our salvation? Well, if that were true, then all men would be saved. For the Bible testifies, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. Isaiah 9, verse 2 and following. And the world will read that and they'll say, Ah, ha, ha, there it is. Here, there you have it. Darkness is dispelled by the coming of the Christ child. What could be more clear that salvation is to be found in the arrival of the baby Jesus? Oh, but listen to John's inspired interpretation of the coming of the light upon our benighted world. What does John write? The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not Receive him. John 1 verse 5 and following. Here then is the light coming into the world. Jesus, the Son of God, being born as a baby. The work of light is to dispel darkness, is it not? But as this child's coming, the darkness still remains. Because the people to whom he came did not receive him for who and what he was. Is baby Jesus, baby Jesus, the reason for the season? Is this the Jesus who saves? Does the world need to hear from the church what it already assumes, namely that the mere arrival of God's Son means that the Savior has come and that they, whoever they are, and no matter how they live, may claim to be having him as their Savior. 
Is the reasoning correct which says, baby Jesus is born? Jesus came as the Savior of the world. I'm part of the world, so he's my Savior too. I submit to you that the first advent of Christ, his arrival, his birth, is not sufficient for you or me or anyone to claim that he is our Savior. The light might be shining, but if there is still the darkness of sin and rebellion and stubbornness in your heart, that light has had no effect on you. You cannot claim the benefits of Christ when you're not the servant of Christ. When you're propagating the baby savior myth, that only muddies the water and it prevents blinded sinners from seeing their way clear to come to Christ in saving faith and repentance. Now I'm sure that these churches that did not mean to convey the idea that Jesus is no more than an aspirin for man's ills or a good product with an ironclad guarantee or a savior to all men just because he was born. In all good conscience, they believed that they were conveying the gospel truth to the passerby on the highway. But non-intentional though they were, these statements portray a wrong message concerning the first advent of Christ. What then is the Bible's depiction of the first advent? It is true, the Bible predicted the coming of God's Son. Now, as soon as I say the word predicted, you should think of the word planned. If something is predicted to occur, it follows that there's a master plan which gives credence to the prediction. Anyone who believes in the inspiration of the Bible understands that when the prophets of old predicted certain events, the integrity of the prophet and his credentials as a true spokesman for God, those were on the line. God himself set down this stipulation. Let me read it for you. It's in Deuteronomy 18. A prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say must be put to death. Ooh, ooh. You may say to yourself, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Answer, I'm still reading scripture. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20 and following. It was a serious matter to attach the name of God to your prophecies or your predictions just to give them a flavor of authority and authenticity. Some of our modern day so-called prophets should take this to heart. Simply put, a true prophet of God made predictions which came true. 
And if they didn't come true, his credentials were false and his life was forfeited. Because God does not lie. His predictions are true and they will come true in their appointed time. For God knows all that is planned because guess what? He's planned all that is to come. So of course he knows. And the true prophet of God then would never think of misusing his office to command people's attention to his own words. Oh, something else here. Not all the prophets understood the full significance of their own prophecies. This makes sense in light of the fact that they spoke for God and they spoke the words of God. And they were born along by the Spirit of God. Peter puts it this way. We have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as, a, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1 verse 19 and following. As spokesmen then they were vessels. The prophets were vessels through which God gave his word. But we ought not to assume that they themselves had some superior insight into all that they said. In particular, with regard to the coming of Christ and his mission and work, Peter also tells us, let me read this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently and with the greatest of care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And even angels long to look into these things. 1 Peter 1, verse 10 and following. So what is Peter saying? Well, he is telling us that the prophets did not understand the very things which Christ's Spirit caused them to prophesy concerning the coming of Christ and his salvation. But because they wanted to know, they themselves became students of the word of God. Now, get this, prophets studying the prophecies of other prophets... <laughs> so to speak, to discover if they could, can I put it this way, the full picture of which their own predictions were only but a small fragment. Boy, that's honesty, isn't it? They were saying, in effect, by doing this, I don't know everything, I don't know it all. So I have my word that God gave me to speak, but... Then there's the prophet Isaiah and what he said, and there's the prophet Jeremiah and what he said, and there's the prophet Hosea and what he said, and I'm going to look at these other prophecies and see if I can't take a piece here and so, and so forth, see if I can't get the full picture of what God is saying. 
And so Peter's statement here shows the utter honesty with which the prophets carried out their task. They spoke only what God told them to speak. And they didn't always know the meaning of what God told them to speak. But they wanted to know. They longed to know. And so they were not too proud to consider the prophecies of their contemporaries to see if the puzzle would kind of take shape as new light shone upon the same subject, the subject of the coming Christ. Smart thing to do. And Peter's statement also tells us the main concern which interested the prophets, namely, I'll read it for you again, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. In other words, there is no idea here of goo-gooing over baby Jesus in a manger. Isn't he so cute? Or of contemplating the coming Christ apart from a definite consideration of his person and mission. This ought to give us directions to go as we consider the prophecies of Jesus' first advent. Just what did the prophets say? What was it that they predicted concerning Christ? First prophecy is found in Genesis 3 verse 15 where God said to the serpent who had caused the downfall of Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, that offspring of the woman, is going to crush your head, snaky, and you will strike his heel. This is called in theology the proto-evangel. You know, a prototype. The auto industries have prototype of cars, especially at this time of the year. It's not the full-fledged car you're going to get on the showroom in six to ten months, but it's a prototype. It, it's, it's, it'll show you, oh, well, the fenders are going to look a little bit like this, or the hood's going to look like that, or the engine's going to be changed to this or that, and so forth. That's the, what do we have in this tech, a proto-evangelical, the gospel in prototype. Not fully fleshed out with all of the details, but enough is said to indicate that with the seed of the woman, that's the coming Christ child, there's going to be a battle with the serpent's offspring, the children of the devil. And the outcome is going to be that Christ will defeat the serpent and his offspring, but in the process, Jesus himself is going to be mortally wounded. This is certainly an allusion to the cross and the conflict which Jesus had with the Jewish leaders of his day, of whom he said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. John 8, verse 43. That prophecy was fulfilled. Again, when Abraham was tested by being commanded to offer his son Isaac, Isaac in his innocence asked his father, well, you know, the fire and the wood, they're here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering, dad? To which Abraham replied, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. 
Genesis 22, verse 7 and following. And all of you know how, on that occasion, with his knife drawn and ready to sacrifice Isaac as God had commanded him to do, God arrested Abraham's intent. He stayed the dagger before it could be plunged into Isaac's heart. And there and there, in the thicket on that mountainside, Abraham found a ram caught by its horns. And we read, Abraham went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Genesis 22, verse 13. We are reminded of the baptizer's bold assertion about Christ. Seeing Jesus coming towards him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, verse 29. And Paul, using the figure of the lamb in reference to the exodus, their deliverance from bondage, said, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Again, prophecy fulfilled. And then there are the Messianic Psalms, so named because they portray some predicted element of the Messiah's future life and ministry. Messiah is just simply the Hebrew word for Christ. They both mean the same thing, the anointed one. Psalm 22 begins with the anguish of the cross heard on the cross in that explicable cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes on, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, they shake their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. People stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Compare the gospel accounts and you will see this prophecy fulfilled. Or Psalm 69, verse 8. I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. I looked for comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food. They gave me vinegar for my thirst. And again, we are caused to reflect upon the sufferings of the cross. Prophecies from the Old Testament concerning the first advent of Christ. And then I have to say that nothing in prophecy even comes close to describing the mission and the work of Jesus that we find in Isaiah 53 where we are told, and let me read it for you, Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace fell upon him. 
Now it's obvious from these scriptures that the Old Testament prophets did not see in the first advent of Jesus anything cute and cuddly. They speak of warfare, of sacrifice, of pain, sorrow. They tell of desertion and mockery, of humiliation at the hands of sinners and of ultimate death. Do you know that there is little said about the simple, can we say, appearance of the Savior? Literally nothing said, not much at all about his childhood. Likewise, Jesus' baby years, his toddler years, his childhood years, are glaringly missing from the gospel accounts. Why is this? I mean, if salvation is simply to be found in the coming of the Christ child, then why is his childhood glossed over with but a few cursory accounts? I submit to you that the baby Jesus saves no one. No one. I submit to you that in his infancy, Jesus was just as vulnerable to the dangers of life and just as dependent upon his parents for nurture and protection as any baby. Else why would God awaken Joseph in the middle of the night and say to him, Get up! Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to try to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up and he took the child and his mother during the night and they fled to Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son, Matthew Chapter 3, verse 13 and following. Kindly, graciously, I say it isn't, it isn't baby Jesus who saves. It is the adult Jesus. It is the Jesus of humiliation. The Jesus of the cross. This is the Jesus who saves and it is this Jesus who is the reason for the season which we honor now at this time of the year. Not so much for the first advent, but for what he's accomplished in that coming advent. It goes without saying, however, that since the prophecies of the first advent depicted a suffering savior, and since those predictions were fulfilled in Christ's birth ministry, death, resurrection, it follows, it follows that whatever prophecies we find in Scripture concerning the second coming of Christ should be taken with the utmost seriousness and reliability. I'm saying it this way. God didn't lie to us the first time concerning the coming of Christ. There's no reason for him to lie to us a second time so what then does God's word have to say about Jesus' second coming? In the Isaiah 9 text, where mention is made to the child who is born for us, the description quickly leaves 
the childhood years and transports us to the time of his adult accomplishments. Let me read it for you. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Two phrases concerning his childhood. Let me read them again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Then boom! And the government will be upon his shoulders. Oh wow, government? Already? He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah 9. Verse 6 and 7. Or what about Psalm 2? Another messianic psalm. This time, one referring to Jesus' second coming. And we are told of the plotting of the nations against God and his anointed. And we are told of God's solution. What's his solution? I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. You will rule over them with an iron scepter. A New Testament prophecy says this. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. Or you want it in Jesus' own words. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. At that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. You're not going to be happy about this. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. From one end of the heavens to the other. Heaven and earth is going to pass away. But my words will never pass away. So Jesus predicts his coming. And everybody's going to see it. And it's not going to be happy for the world. Or consider the glorious depiction of Christ's coming in Revelation 19. John writes, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe that's dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treats, he, excuse me, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe... And on his thigh, he has this name written, King of 
kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 19, verse 11 and following. It's crystal clear that there is a radical and different Christ coming who makes this appearance at his second advent. I'll put it this way. Gone forever is the humiliation. Gone forever is the mockery. Gone is the subservience to the evil designs of wicked men. Gone is the cross. Gone is the pain. Gone is the death. A royal crown of rule and might replaces the crown of thorns. The purple robes of majesty replace the naked one who hung before a gawking, jeering crowd. There's no pilot to pronounce an unjust sentence upon the guiltless God-man. But there is the king of glory seated upon the throne of David with justice and righteousness to dispense all who have abused the rights and freedoms of others and have oppressed the innocent. There is no cold, damp tomb in which to house the lifeless body of the innocent Lamb of God. But there's a fiery hell, a torment over which the risen Christ presides and into which every liar, every adulterer, every occult worshiper, every murderer, every idolater will be cast for eternity. There is no King Herod. There is no King Agrippa. There is no King Felix. There is no mighty Nero, under whom Paul lost his life and many other disciples of Christ. There is only this King of kings and Lord of lords, whose sovereignty extends over the nations of the earth without equal and without rival. May I say this is the Jesus who is the reason for the season. And this Jesus will either save you or damn you according to his own determination. Jesus Christ is no longer at the mercy of sinners. No, sinners are at the mercy of him. And that's why we have in Psalm 2 these this warning written by the psalmist, what does he say? He says, kiss the son, S-O-N, this Jesus. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2, verse 12. Have you taken refuge in Christ? What a way to start the new year, right? I don't know Christ. I don't know anything about him. I haven't trusted him for the forgiveness of my sins. I don't know, but I'd like to know. I haven't trusted, but I don't have any faith. Where do I get the faith? You pray and you ask. What a wonderful way to start out the new year to come out of the family of the secular, condemned, damned world into a culture that is blessed by God and his salvation and grace. That's the Jesus who's the reason for the season.
Let's pray. Thank you, dear Christ. We do acknowledge that you came as a little baby, as a child. But our emphasis should not be on that. In fact, the scripture tells us that there's not much emphasis in the Holy Scriptures about baby Jesus. But there's a whole lot written about the crucified Jesus. There's a whole lot written about the Lord of glory and what he's accomplished for his people and what he expects from his people. And there's a whole lot written about salvation found only in Christ, the adult Jesus, who is the reason for the season. Help us to comprehend these things. Bring us to the place of faith and repentance. Give us a heart to turn away from our sin. Let us pick up our sin and cast it upon Christ at his own invitation where he says, Come unto me, all you that are labored and heavy laden, and I will give give you rest. Cast your sins upon me. For I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find, you will find rest for your souls. Is there someone here, Lord, that needs to find rest for their souls? May you find them today. May in a simple prayer, God forgive me, God save me, in a simple prayer, may they be brought to faith in Christ this day. Become their Lord this day, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Red Trinity, number 327. 327 in Trinity. I like this hymn. Saw full of hope. Hope and praise. Let's stand together as we sing. Three, two, seven.
I encourage you once again. He didn't lie to us about the first coming. God does not lie to us about his second coming. You say, well, where is he? I'm waiting. Well, if you're not ready to meet God through Christ and his forgiveness, you need to be thankful for the delay. God's being merciful to you. But you need to be ready for when he comes. Hope you have a good new year. This is a good way to start out the new year by being in God's house with God's people. See you on Wednesday night for prayer service and moving into the new year. We got lots to pray about. Pray, pray for the sick. Got a lot that are sick today. Amen. We're dismissed.